Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented value-based system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Friends, a couple of messages before we get to this week's interview. If you haven't already done so, I am inviting you to subscribe to my podcast newsletter. It comes out every one or two weeks and includes a detailed description of the podcast, news about upcoming guests, as well as updates on my ongoing work to reframe healthcare. To subscribe, go to my website, www.reframehealthcare.org. That's www.reframehealthcare.org and click on the podcast page. All you have to do is enter your email address in the pop-up box and just hit subscribe. It's simple. So now turning to today's episode. Folks, I can't tell you how excited I am to invite the Honorable David Shulkin to creating a new healthcare podcast this week. Uh, Secretary Shulkin recently published a book entitled, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country. It's a fascinating account of his time as the Undersecretary of Health in the Obama administration, as well as his time as the Secretary of Veteran Affairs in the Trump administration, and in fact, in the Trump cabinet. In this interview, we're going to be focusing really on healthcare delivery in the veteran affairs system, what lessons uh, Dr. Shulkin learned, and in particular, what we all can learn from the VA system. You know, the content obviously is about healthcare, but I think it's also a tremendous lesson in integrity and courage and commitment. Before we jump into the interview, let's take a listen to a clip from our conversation. The irony is, is that when I came to VA, I thought I was going to be the expert bringing the private sector practices and the effectiveness and efficiency of the private sector to government. I think the reality is when I left, I realized that there were more lessons that frankly should flow the other way, that working in this massive integrated approach of a system that is free from the reimbursement and insurance uh, rules that we have to work with in the private sector it gave us a lot more freedom to do, frankly, what was right for our patients and the populations we were serving. Friends, our guest this week is the Honorable Dr. David Shulkin. Dr. Shulkin served as the ninth secretary of the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs as a member of President Trump's cabinet. Previous to that, he also served as the Undersecretary for Health, having been appointed by President Obama. Now, in both positions, he was confirmed by a unanimous vote in the Senate. Prior to coming to the VA, Secretary Shulkin was a widely respected healthcare executive. He served as the CEO at uh, the Beth Israel Hospital in New York City and Morristown Medical Center in North Jersey. He's held a senior physician leadership positions, including at the University of Pennsylvania Health System and the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Secretary Shulkin has held academic positions, including as the chairman of medicine and the vice dean at Drexel University School of Medicine. He has served on numerous boards of managed care companies, tech companies, and healthcare organizations. The secretary is the 2018 University of Pennsylvania Leonard Davis Institute Distinguished Health Policy Fellow. He is a board-certified internist, and he continued to practice medicine throughout his tenure as a healthcare executive and during his time at the VA. Secretary Shulkin has been named as one of the top 100 physician leaders by Becker's Hospital Review and one of the 50 most influential physician executives in the country by both Modern Healthcare and Modern Physician. Without further ado, let's drop into the interview. Welcome to Creating New Healthcare Podcast, and how are you today? 
Great. And thank you so much for those kind words. I, I don't know what it says about me. So many people, you know, reach out to me and say, boy, I was so surprised how much I enjoyed the book or how easy it was to get through. I don't know. Maybe they thought I'd be a long, boring read, but it was a very personal book for me and my family. And I felt that by sharing my experiences and sharing my insights about something that I'm very passionate about, that that would be another way of me having a impact. And the more people that get to learn about veterans' healthcare issues, about the way our government works, that's really the ultimate success of the book for me. There were parts where I literally couldn't put it down. And I have to say, I probably agree with some of the people who called you. I was surprised. It really read like a bit like a novel. Your passion and your persona and everything that you shared really came through. Well, I'm glad. And I certainly tried to be genuine because this is, uh, you know, the issue of doing better for our veterans is very important to me and to many people who share that same value. But, you know, the part about it reading like a novel, I do think that many people are surprised that this does almost seem like a fictional story. But unfortunately, for those of us who have lived through this recent government and the things that are happening now and the things that everyone's seeing on TV almost every day, this is, we're not going to wake up from this and say, wow, that was a that was a movie or that was a, a dream. This is actually happening right now in our country. And I think the more that people understand what the current situation is really like, the more that I think that people will be empowered to make the decisions to have the type of government that they want. Mm. So I want to dive in and can you give us a little bit of background, just a few stats uh, about the VA system, the number of veterans that are cared for, the number of centers, the number of doctors or employees, how big a budget? Can just a little bit of a background of, of a VA? Sure. Let's start with that there are 21 million American veterans. So a lot of people in this country rely upon the VA for services. The biggest programs, of course, that people don't necessarily think about are the GI Bill, which has educated literally millions of American veterans and their families, and the GI Home Loan Program, which again, if it wasn't for that, we probably wouldn't have so many single family homes and neighborhoods that have popped up since World War II. But the program that gets the most attention is the VA healthcare system. So of the 21 million American veterans alive, uh, about nine and a half million will get their healthcare through the VA healthcare system. So it's the largest healthcare system in the country the VA employs 375,000 people. It's the second largest government agency, only second to the Department of Defense. Just to give you a sense, uh, the State Department, which everyone's heard of, has about 20,000 employees in it. So VA, 375,000 would be much bigger. Its annual budget is now $200 billion. So it's a massive organization that covers all across the country. There are facilities, over a thousand healthcare facilities and many other VA facilities. And actually, in many parts of the world, VA operates operations wherever there are veterans. For example, in the Philippines, where many Americans settled after they did their duty, VA runs a medical center in the Philippines and in Guam and in other parts of the world. Now, and there was some stat or some number in your book where you talked about the number of new veterans each year that are coming into the VA system. And it was a pretty significant number as well. So this is a growing system. Yeah, the military, of course, has gotten smaller than it was during Vietnam era or World War II. But still, we have about 250,000 
people who transition out of the active military every year. And of course, they're all veterans. Those that are honorably discharged uh, are able to get their services through the VA system. And so it's about a quarter million new entrants each year. What are some of the strengths of the VA system, some areas of special expertise that make the system an important part of our overall American healthcare ecosystem? The reason why, first of all, I believe it's essential that we have a strong VA system is basically for the issue of national security. We now rely upon a voluntary military, less than 1% of Americans serve in the military. And if those people who raise their hands to defend the rest of us don't feel that there's going to be people there to help them should they come back and need the help and support them, then I think the whole system begins to start falling apart. And so I think it's essential. The VA system, what makes it unique is is that it is largely a culture that supports and recognizes who veterans are and makes them feel comfortable. 40% of the employees are veterans themselves, but it's a system that has developed expertise in those issues that veterans need the most, such as issues related to post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, prosthetics and orthotics, the environmental exposures to war, like the mustard gases and other things that our soldiers see. And so it is a system that really has expertise that doesn't exist easily outside of the VA system. Also, VA does research on issues that help veterans, uh, massive research that not only helps veterans, but then helps all Americans when new things are brought into the market. So the first hemodialysis was done in the VA, the first liver transplant, cardiac defibrillation. Uh, The electronic medical record was first uh, widely used in the VA system. Hmm. Uh, The association of an aspirin a day that prevents heart attack, that's VA research. And then VA also does tremendous amounts of education over healthcare professionals. The largest graduate medical education programs for our doctors are the VA, for the nurses, psychologists, social workers, pharmacists. We train more healthcare professionals than anybody else. And of course, when they're done their training, they go out. Some may stay in the VA, but most go out and work in the American healthcare system. No, that's great. When you entered the VA first as the undersecretary in the Obama administration and then as the secretary of veteran affairs in the Trump administration, what were some of the healthcare delivery gaps, some of the deficiencies that you noticed? And I'm very curious, were they very different uh, than those you encountered in the private healthcare sector or were they similar? I had uh, not been not only a veteran myself, but I had never worked before in government. And the last time I had been in a VA was when I was in medical school and residency many years ago. So I'd spent my entire professional career in the private sector. And so when I came in, it was all new to me. I entered at the time of a national crisis, which in 2014, many people may remember, was called the wait time crisis, where veterans, hundreds of thousands of veterans were waiting more than 30 days for care. Some of them uh, were alleged to have died waiting for that care, particularly in Phoenix. And I entered really with a mandate to fix the wait time issue and the access issue. And that's really where my initial focus was. And the way to fix that was very different than what I would do in the private sector. First of all, because I had a national problem on my hands and I had to provide access in areas of the country where frankly, we had no facilities and there weren't many healthcare professionals like many rural areas. 
And so I had to come up with new ideas and solutions than I necessarily would in the private sector. You know, having had the opportunity to read your book, here's what I found astounding was, number one, the approach you took, share with us how you fixed it. But what was really surprising was in chapter 22, you said that you were able to achieve same-day service at all of the, was it 168 centers? And you went on to say that 22% of the vets were being seen on a same-day basis, which is remarkable. And I know you published some results in JAMA in 2018, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, which demonstrated the, the profound improvements you all made in access, but also that I believe that they were better than the non-VA healthcare system. So could you say a little bit about at least one of the interventions you took in terms of access? Yeah. Uh, you know, first of all, let me say for people that are managing businesses themselves, I think the single most important thing that I did when I came in to the organization in 2015, which was approximately a year and a half after the wait time crisis had begun. And the reason why there had been a long gap is because vetting and getting uh, confirmation by the Senate took approximately a year and a half to get done. But when I entered, I think the single most important thing I did was I made clear to the organization that our priority was to fix this problem. And a leader has the ability to set the organizational focus and the priorities. And that's really what I did almost unilaterally until I made sure that there weren't veterans being harmed by lack of access to healthcare. The way that I did that and the way that I think every good leader should do this is I asked the right questions. And the question that had not been asked was, were there veterans who had clinical problems that weren't being met by the current access that we had. So in other words, I knew that we had hundreds of thousands of veterans that were waiting for care, but if they were waiting for elective care, routine care, that really wasn't the issue I was so concerned about. But if they were waiting for urgent problems or things that couldn't wait without them being harmed, that's what I was concerned about. So when I asked the question the right way, and I finally got the answer that there were 57,000 veterans who were waiting more than 30 days for urgent care, I knew that that was a problem. In fact, I called it an emergency because that was totally unacceptable. And as soon as you learn that there's an emergency or something that's unacceptable, you better do something about it and you better do it quick. So I called for a national stand down. Now that was a new term to me, but it's actually used in the military when you have to drop what you're doing and focus on achieving an objective in battle. And that's exactly the analogy I used. And so we opened up every VA medical center across the country on the upcoming weekend. And I said, we will stay open and we will see these 57,000 veterans who have urgent issues until we get through the list. And by Monday morning of that first weekend, we entered Monday morning with only a thousand veterans who had not been seen. So we had seen 56,000 or made sure that their problems had been taken care of. And at that point, I felt good knowing that we as a country could act and act with urgency, but I was not comfortable that that list wouldn't just grow back and build back up as problems often do. So the only way that I knew how to fix this and to assure this wouldn't happen again was to make sure that we had same-day access, that if a veteran ever had an urgent medical problem, they should be seen right there then on the same day. 
And so by the end of December of 2016, approximately a year and a half later, I was able to tell President Obama that every VA facility across the country now had same-day services, and then I could feel confident that veterans wouldn't be harmed waiting for care. And to make sure that that also never became sort of a hidden problem, one of the first things I did once I became secretary was I published all of our wait time data on the internet, still is the only system that I'm aware of in this country that publishes its wait time data so that everybody can see what those wait times are and whether they're growing back to unacceptable levels. I remember reading that, the transparency that you uh, put into place around waiting times. How frequently is that refreshed? When I was there, we were, we were refreshing that approximately every two weeks. I believe that's the same schedule, but you know it's possible that they may have changed it, but mm-hmm. it still is publicly available. What a great lesson for the private sector. And I'm very interested in the access because it it's a national issue, right? This is not just an issue that's limited to the VA. Well, no, I'm, that's what you had referred to the study that I published in JAMA in 2018, where we showed that now VA wait times are better than you see in the private sector. And that from the study period that we looked at, 2014 to 16, that while VA wait times came down considerably because of the things that we were focused on, that the wait times in the private sector did not improve at all. So not only is it a worse situation, but it's actually not improving. And that, of course, is a concern and something that I wish more private sector colleagues would focus on. Another topic I'd like to discuss with you, which is also a ubiquitous issue in healthcare in America, is electronic medical records. You spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about your key role in making a decision about what medical record system to uh, switch to. So I'm curious why the switch? And again, it's it's a multi-monthly billion-dollar rollout. So you really started something that is profound. It's going to change the VA for years, if not decades to come. So I'm curious why you thought you and your colleagues thought there needed to be a change and how you made your decision. What do you think, if there are any lessons you can share with the rest of us who are in the private sector in healthcare? When I came to VA, I had never used an electronic health record. In fact, I had joked with my friends that I would hope to be the last doctor in America who would use an electronic health record because I didn't like what it was doing to our industry where doctors were spending more time staring at computer screens than talking to their patients. Mm -hmm. But when I came to the VA, I really had no choice because VA was a completely electronic system, hadn't used paper in close to 25 years. And so I put on my white coat and my stethoscope and I started to see patients and had to use the electronic health record. And much to my surprise, I found exactly what you were saying, which is the system was fairly easy to use, functional, and uh, my colleagues liked it, and I soon began to like it as well. So the reason I made the decision to make a change had nothing to do with the way the system operated. It had to do with three things. First of all, the VA doesn't have an electronic health record. It actually has 130 electronic health records, and the way the system was designed many years ago, gave the freedom of every medical center to change and adapt its system to its local needs. So now the system can't operate like a system. It operates as 130 separate systems. You can't make changes across the system. You have to do them individually, and that's a limitation. Secondly, the technology that the systems build upon 
now that it's more than 30 years old, is very old. It uses mumps programming. It's almost impossible to find mumps programmers. And it's very, very expensive to keep the system up. In fact, I would describe it as being held together with bubble gum and Band-Aids. And the maintenance costs of it were approaching billions of dollars a year. And that was only going to get worse, not get better. And we couldn't find the employees to staff it. And then third, there was a little issue of that our system didn't talk very well to the Department of Defense system, which is where every single one of our future customers are gonna come from. And the Department of Defense years ago had made the decision to drop its homegrown system and go for a commercial system. And unfortunately at that time, they didn't choose to invest with the DA and make a single system, but they went their own way. And so I felt that if we were going to really modernize this VA and make sure that it was functional for veterans and that information was interoperable, both with the Department of Defense and the private sector hospitals, that we were going to have to go to a commercial system. I also knew that Congress had been asking us to do this for over 20 years. But with the constant turnover at the top of organizations like secretaries coming and going, nobody had made that decision. And if I had started with committees and trying to get consensus, I too knew that that process would outlast decision-making. So I went into a secret process, a process that actually has never been used before VA, only a couple times in government. It's called a determination of findings where essentially I alone made the decision to switch to a commercial system because I felt it was in the public safety interests of veterans, which means that I felt that lives were at risk if we were going to continue to not be able to get information shared between the Department of Defense and the Department of VA, that people were being harmed by that. I made that decision in a very, very closed setting. I was immediately sued because the people didn't, who didn't get the contract didn't like it. The judge saw that I made this decision on literally thousands of pages of information and data that I had spent a long time taking a look at and upheld the decision in the Department of Veteran Affairs' favor. And then we were able to move into contract discussions, avoiding the protracted years of government procurement processes so that we could get this done on behalf of veterans. Were there any lessons that would be useful for others who are looking at uh, at systems like that? I know it's a complex, robust system. There's analytics behind it. Any lessons you learned from that process? Yeah. What I didn't talk about was technology because I don't think that this was a technology decision. I didn't try to pick the system that had the most bells and whistles. I was operating off of principles, and the principles were that I needed a system that would be contemporary and maintained. I needed a system that would allow for interoperability of data. And I needed a system that I thought I would have confidence could be installed and work well in a very, very complex setting. And so staying focused on making decisions based on principles and knowing why you're making that decision, knowing that it's not going to please a lot of people, that's really the lessons that I think anybody who has to make tough, complex decisions needs to follow. Yeah, that's so refreshing. But thank you for that. I want to jump to a, a different topic, which is the issue of uh, how the VA is organized. And I've got a couple of questions here. 
The first is in, in chapter 54 uh, called Getting It Right for Veterans, you wrote, quote, in order to survive and thrive, the VA needs to change from being a pure provider of care to being a network coordinator of care, end quote. I'm really curious about this because it seems like what you're saying is that the VA should curate care as opposed to just having to create all of it. So, but I'm, I'm very, very interested in what you mean by this shift from a pure provider to a network coordinator. Well, I think you've picked out one of the key fundamental shifts in the way that I began to think about the role of VA. And while, as I said, I believe that VA needs to maintain strong, sustainable services that the private sector can't provide and doesn't provide because these are veteran centric issues. Uh, the fact is, is that what we learned with the wait time crisis and frankly should have learned over the decades of struggling in the VA system is that VA can't provide all the healthcare needs to its veterans alone. It needs to work with the private sector to create a combination system, a system that takes the strengths of the VA and the strengths of the private sector and wraps it around the veteran. And that means that VA can't continue to look at itself as the sole provider of care. And particularly with the use of technology, now that we're seeing healthcare without any specific address, people get their care in their mobile phones, they get their care at home, they get their care at work, uh, and they still get their care sometimes in hospitals. The role of what we used to think of providers now becomes a role of a network coordinator, making sure that there's coordination of care, continuity of care, that the gaps in care are picked up, and that uh, people are allowed to live their lives in a way that they themselves have more control over their own data and the way that healthcare is delivered. So I think this is a shift in the way that we as healthcare administrators and managers need to think about our jobs in the future and where healthcare is going, that that our job is is to support the patient, in this case the veteran, in a very complex ecosystem and no longer just as providing healthcare services in the doctor's office or a hospital. I couldn't agree with you more. I would say this applies to all healthcare systems across the country in the private sector. I think the days where we provided soup to nuts, you know, so-called integrated delivery care units, that comprehensive care, I just don't think it makes sense anymore. We can't create all of care. As you say, it's in so many channels. We need to shift to really being that coordinator, as you put it, that what I would use the term curator, and really be responsible for making sure the care is safe and connected and continuous and really customer-oriented. So I was really delighted to see you make that point towards the end of the book. The irony is, is that when I came to VA, I thought I was going to be the expert bringing the private sector practices and the effectiveness and efficiency of the private sector to government. I think the reality is when I left, I realized that there were more lessons that frankly should flow the other way, that working in this massive integrated approach of a system that is free from the reimbursement and insurance rules that we have to work with in the private sector it gave us a lot more freedom to do, frankly, what was right for our patients and the populations we were serving. And so some of these lessons about being a network coordinator and how you look at the issues of interoperability and looking at the social determinants of health, I think there are many lessons that the private sector should be looking at the VA for. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I, it's really interesting. I was in the VA system for the first few years of my career and as a primary care physician and ran an outpatient clinic actually at the Bronx VA. And um, what was interesting is I observed, you know, the vets coming in and spending their days or parts of their days and parts of their weeks in the system. And at that time, I didn't really understand that what they were doing was they were treating the issue of social isolation. They were gathering together and talking and forming community. And it wasn't until rather recently when this issue of social isolation, which is now epidemic in our country and across the globe, right? It's at least 50% of the population, for sure, more than that in the elderly population. And the VA, decades ago, either intentionally or unintentionally, understood that and provided for the vets a way to treat that. And I think even my experience in terms of behavioral health, it seemed to me there was much more focus on it in the VA system than we have had in the private sector, at least up until recently. So I'm curious what you think about that, the issue of social isolation, but are there other lessons you think where you say, hey, the private sector really needs to learn a lesson from the VA about this? I do think that you've brought up a really important lesson. I I don't know whether it was unintentional or intentional, but You know, I came in with a very different mindset from the private sector. I saw these uh, large wards that to me looked like old style medicine, you know, back when I trained and I said, we're going to get rid of these wards and we're going to go to single rooms like contemporary hospitals do. And a lot of people said to me, no, you know what? Veterans like to be with other veterans when they're in the hospital. They enjoy that experience. And then when I would practice medicine and I'd write a prescription or refill prescription. I'd say to my patient, look, we can, we have a great mail order service. You don't have to wait. We'll send it right to you. And many of them would say, no, we actually like waiting in the lobby to talk to our, 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 our fellow veterans, tell war stories, play checkers. And so I think you're right that one of the things that makes VA a special place is people around people that are accepting that feel that they understand them, that they're comfortable. And that does begin to address this, social isolation. And some of the examples of what VA does extraordinarily well, you know, the two I would mention are both public health crises. One is suicide and the other is hepatitis. And in both situations, I think VA has taken a unique approach. But in suicide, which was my top clinical priority with 20 veterans a day taking their life through suicide, I've come to believe that while there's not going to be a magic single button cure for this, that the real power is going to be in utilizing the power of social connectedness with people who understand them. In other words, using peers, other veterans to connect with people that are lonely and need help and helping them navigate their way through a complex system of behavioral health care. And so I'm working a lot on those types of issues with physician groups and partnered up with a person who's experienced this himself and uh, trying to find some further solutions in that area. The example of hepatitis is where we did a true population health approach. I asked our staff how many veterans had hepatitis C. They went into the databases and came back and told me there were 163,000 veterans who had hepatitis C. And I said, Well, now that we have a drug that can cure this at rates above 95%, we're going to eliminate hepatitis C among all veterans in this country. People, again, thought I might have been a little bit crazy, but 
I went to Congress. I told them I was going to do it. They gave me a billion and a half dollars to get that done. And frankly, it's being done right now. Well over 100,000 of those 163,000 have already been treated. We contacted each one, brought them in using team-based approaches. We've put them through the course of the medications. And I believe in the relatively near future, that goal of eliminating hepatitis will have been achieved. And I think that's what should be happening out in the private sector with accountable care organizations and health systems that say that they have population health approaches. You need to proactively identify the comorbidities and then go out there with war plans to be able to attack those illnesses, whether they're chronic or acute, and essentially try to improve the health of your population. You know, stepping back and looking at the American healthcare system, if you were talking to Alex Azar at HHS or SEMA at, at, at CMS, you know, given what they're doing now, I mean, do you think it's a little slow or do you think it's, you know, what would you say to them or what would you, what would you advise, uh, you know, senior leaders in the American system in terms of here's what I think you guys should be doing or focusing on? Well, first of all, I, having been in, in the shoes of running a large government agency, I have a lot of respect for the complexity of those decisions and how challenging it is to make progress. So no way do I want to give criticism, but I am a believer that it is better to have big, bold decisions rather than incremental change. I think government suffers from way too much incremental change. And I do believe that the payment system is the reason why we continue to get the types of results and frustrations that we have. So when you take a look at the issue of treating uh, a population health problem like hepatitis, I do think that the way that I approached it is transferable even in the private sector. You're now seeing states like Louisiana using what is called a Netflix model. It's a terrible name, but it's where the state is paying a set fee to a drug company to be able to treat as many patients as they can to have as many cures of hepatitis as they can. And so what you're seeing is a transition from a fee-for-service payment model to one that is based on outcomes and performance. And so while there's so much focus on drug prices right now, I think the focus is largely in the wrong place. We need to start paying for results and paying for outcomes rather than worrying about the unit cost price, which is where all the discussion today is. So uh, I, I hope that we begin to start thinking bolder and bigger about many of these problems that face the country today. I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the challenges right now is because we're in this swirl, this slow evolution over the next decade or more, it's really challenging to live in those two worlds, which is what we're being asked to do. And I think I, think I would agree with you if we could take a bold move. I think it, it might be a little bit more painful in the short run, but it would be so much better in the long run for both providers the rest of the ecosystem, and for sure, for patients. Yes. I have to say, one of the most touching stories you shared was the Charlottesville episode, where there was that march in Charlottesville, there was a protest, and uh, people were killed. And clearly, the, the administration at the time was not taking a stand on it. And you stepped up, and uh, you gave an opinion that was uh, potentially contrary to uh, the president's uh, public point of view at the time. And you say in, in that chapter, as a cabinet secretary, I was never supposed to criticize or contradict the president, but I decided that if this were the last thing I did in public office, it would be worth it, end quote there. 
I think there is such a, an important lesson about leadership and potentially the lack of leadership. And I'm not just talking about in the government, I am talking about in all our institutions in this country. And I just wonder if you could share your thoughts about that episode and why you did that and how you did it. And what do you think about it now and the lesson you think it pretends for, for other leaders in this country? I think that what is so disappointing to me today watching what's happening throughout the country is so many people who aren't willing to stand up and talk about what they believe and what their principles are and when those principles are violated. And it's actually scary to me because you would think that any student of history would see that that usually doesn't turn out well, that when good people stay silent, bad things happen. And so I was faced with a real-time decision during the Charlottesville time when I was watching what really just turned out to be one data point of what is a very scary time where the hate in the country and the and the prejudices that we see in the country are really coming out now in ways that in the past we hadn't seen and whether I was going to stay silent or not. And really I spoke out for personal reasons and as a private citizen, even though I knew that I had the ability to speak to a large audience. So when I had the opportunity, I went before the national TV crews and I talked about the fact that American veterans had given their lives to fight against Nazis. And now we're seeing neo-Nazis and white supremacists who are taking to the streets feeling empowered and, and that this is just absolutely wrong, that it's important that people speak out against us. We should not tolerate this type of behavior in this country or frankly anywhere in the world. And uh, I felt that if that was taken as a criticism by the White House or by the president, I told my family I thought I might get fired and I'd be okay if that happened. And I operated every day knowing that it could be my last day serving in government. As we now see, many, many people have gone through uh, what I call the revolving doors at the White House, uh, so that nobody should think that they have a permanent job there. But um, you have to have your boundaries. You have to stand up for what you believe in. You have to have your principles. And if you don't have that, it becomes a very dangerous place, I think, to work. And, and I don't believe you're really doing your job if you don't stand up for what you believe in. And so um, ultimately, I think that's what ended up happening with me, that I was not willing to bend on some of the very core principles I had about maintaining a strong, sustainable VA. And if that cost me my job, as it ultimately did, I'm okay with that. What are you most proud of in your work at the VA? Or is there a takeaway that you could share with us? I think I'm most proud of being able to help individual people that I came across the most meaningful interactions for me were with veterans and their families and people would come to me with problems and not only would that help me maybe address their individual problems but then that would help me address the more systemic problems and try to help prevent those same issues from happening again so it really is the impact on the people the whole reason why i came to government in the first place to help people that i believe deserve the very best that this country can deliver for them. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given? Something that's really helped you throughout your career and your life? I think that there are two things that stick out for me. One is learning early on 
that so many of my mentors, when they approached the end of their professional careers and they look back upon answering the question, you know, what are you most proud of and what was most important? It always turned out to be the answer was people, people that they had trained uh, who've gone on to do great things or people that are continuing to have an impact that probably wouldn't be in their position if it wasn't for the influence of the more senior mentor. And so for me, I've always had a strong emphasis on making sure that I was teaching and training people so that the work could continue even if I wasn't there. And so I'm proud of many of the people that continue in the VA who are doing the work and believe in the things and the principles that I believed in were there today carrying out that mission. The second thing and the piece of advice that probably sticks the most with me was that when you have a decision, when you know that something should happen, better to make that decision sooner and quicker rather than delay it. And my feeling is many people, even though they know it's the right thing to do, will talk themselves out of it, will wait because it's often difficult to make a decision. And things almost never get better. They almost always get worse. What are you planning to do next? Has that been decided or really wondering about that towards the end of the book? I'm on a journey. I'm not sure exactly where that journey heads as long as it continues to be meaningful to me. I'm working with a number of organizations, a number of companies, all on issues that I think are either going to be transformative to the healthcare model or are important to me personally, things that I've worked on. Some of that clearly is continuing to be involved in the veteran space, but also just in terms of general focusing on underserved populations and in behavioral health and in future technologies that I think will make healthcare much better. Where that ends up going, as long as I continue to feel like it's having an impact, I'm not really deliberately thinking about it, letting, letting life play itself out. Any final message to our listeners out there who are also in healthcare and very interested in, in, in transforming healthcare and like yourself, really uh, making it so much better for people. Any final lesson or thought? I think uh, follow your heart. Um, don't be afraid to take risks. Don't be afraid of failure. And good things usually happen when people are working hard to make change and to do the right thing. On that note, uh, Secretary Shulkin, I just want to again say I just am so inspired by you and so grateful that you shared your story and the lessons with us in your book. Uh, I definitely urge others to read it and been a, a real thrill for me to have this opportunity Thanks. to speak with you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Folks, uh, that was the interview with the Honorable David Shulkin. I want to thank Secretary Shulkin for taking some time to be part of creating a new healthcare and, again, bringing us his unique perspectives and his unique experience. Again, his book is an extraordinary account. It's an eye-opening account of what it's like to be at that level of the federal government in uh, this particular administration, the Trump administration. It's a little disturbing, but, but again, I think for me, the interview also carried so many lessons about commitment and integrity, about courage, and about service. Uh, in the end, it's really a book about leadership. And so again, I just want to thank uh, the secretary for taking the time to speak with us today. And as I do every episode, I'd like to thank all of you out there who are doing the hard work each day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients 
I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. And as always, I hope you've benefited from this podcast as much as I have. This is Zev Newworth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be well. Thank you.